Welcome again, I'm Pastor Daniel, and I am excited tonight as we get to share about what really matters. I was, I was thinking about this on Sunday, uh, I was with my boys, and I had this, this prop in my, my office for a different message, and they found this, this lamp, and they're messing with it, and they, they, you know, they tried to give it a little rub, see if a genie would come out, but it got them talking about wishes. And you know, they're, they're rubbing, they're going like, well, I would wish for, and I would wish for, and then they're like going through like, are there things you're not allowed to wish for? And they're like, well, you're not allowed to wish for more wishes. They're like, I'd wish for more genies so that I could have more wishes. And, and it was amusing and it was fun watching these guys, these guys go and they begin to talk. And then after we narrowed down and I started going, okay, this could be a fun conversation. I said, well, what would you wish for? And you can't just keep wishing for more wishes or for more genies so that you could have more wishes. What is it, what is it that, that really is important? What really matters? If you could have things like, what if it was just one thing? And they're going through there and they start listing things from um, that the one wanted all the money in the world or, or more money than anyone else has ever had. Another one was going through going, what if we could just play all the time? And he's going through like what he would like and different things. And, but it, it left me thinking, and you're like, what, what would you wish for if you, if you had the, this, this wish? And we're going through it. And as I begin to ponder it, I go, you know what? I know what God would wish for. And it's kind of a strange thing to think of going, you know, what, you know God obviously is not going to rub a lamp and have a genie pop out. But what is, what is God's number one desire? If God could have one thing and you're like, well, what, what could I give? What could, what, what could God possibly be missing that God could desire? He's God. He's, he's all powerful. But the Bible tells us that his heart, that his desire, that his longing is for his kids, is for his lost children. And the Bible goes over and over again. It says that he doesn't want anyone to perish, that God wants all men to be saved, that he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And I begin to think of this, and I begin to think of the fact that I've got kids. My wife and I have got four kids. We've got a, a picture of us all at the zoo, uh, checking out our wingspans there as a family. And then that's the, the kids next to the Lego gorilla that is just, fun is they all decided that they were going to be gorillas. But with, with having kids, if you've ever had kids, you may know that they can move quickly and they can disappear quickly. Uh, I have never had to call the police on the missing kids, which is, which is good. Uh, in fact, I don't even know if I've ever had to get security involved, but I have definitely had kids all of a sudden disappear. They're there, they're with you, and then all of a sudden they're, they're not. And that can be really frustrating. My daughter, for the longest time, she decided that hide and seek was the game for her without telling you. And so she would just disappear. In fact, since then, we've gotten childproof locks on all the doors so that she can't leave the house or try not to let her leave the house, but she always finds a way. But she just disappeared one day until we were all just freaking out. First, when the kid disappears, you're just like, oh, well, especially at home, right? they're, they're here somewhere and just check another bedroom or check the basement or check. But after you go through and you check those and you check the front yard, check the backyard, you run down by the road, you come back and you're like, oh no. And she turned out to be hiding in my car. 
she had got crawled into my car. She'd opened the door, crawled in, shut the door, locked the doors, and then was hiding in the bottom of the car to see if she could play hide and go seek. And that was, it puts you in a little bit of a panic. I think the, the scariest time was when my oldest boy was two years old. We'd moved into our house and we live a little ways off the road. There's some trees between us and the road, which is nice because from the house, you don't see much of the road, except the bad thing is from the house, you don't see much of the road if your little one disappeared. And so all of a sudden we're, we're doing things and realize that Benaiah just had disappeared. And we, you know, you, you run through the house and you check all the bedrooms and you check the front yard, check the backyard. And then you sprint like mad down, down the driveway to the road and you're looking and you're like, okay, he's not up here. We're going to work our way back. And, and you get like the longer that they're missing and the more places that you check looking for them, the more of like a frenzy you work into. And that one, we actually searched everywhere. And we're like, no, man, where, where? Could he go? Like he didn't, he's two years old. He didn't just disappear. And as we're pondering this, I heard the sound of a tractor. And they're like, I'm, I'm going to go check. Behind us, there's a little bit of like brushy, I call it woods is exaggeration, but there's brush. And then it drops down into a ditch. Um, there's a bit of a hill, then a ditch. And then it comes back up this big old hill. And on the, up past that big old hill, there's some big old tractors moving some dirt and they're doing some construction at this time. And my two-year-old disappeared. So I, I ended up going running and I go run through the brush and there's some pretty serious brush down through the little ditch there and up the other side. And there's my son crawling up the other side trying to go see the big old tractors. And it, it was, it was kind of scary. And when, when this happens, important things stop being important. Nothing else matters until you find your missing kid. And I've talked to people who've lost their kids in more dangerous spots than their own backyard, whether it was the mall, whether it was um, in different trips, theme parks and different things where they, they, they lost them and had to get security involved. I remember being a little kid and being lost in a store or mall on multiple occasions, which is not really a reflection of my parents. That was probably a reflection of me crawling underneath a uh, clothing rack and then hiding and then discovering afterwards that my mom was gone. And while she was probably just like 10 feet away, I went looking for her elsewhere until I was good and lost. But when you have, I, mean, I can't tell you how many times I've had it where they're not super lost, but you have people over, you're hanging out and you just do that like head count real quick. You're like, one, two, three, four. All right, we're good. And you go, one, two, three. And then you're like, all right, hey, and you send people, like you recruit all of the friends, like, hey, quick, you run around the back of the house. I'm gonna run the front of the house. I'm gonna run to the, like, you check inside, you check behind. I'm gonna run down the driveway because that's where the most danger is. And we're gonna check all those spots quick and come back because nothing else matters until you find your kids. This is true for me, but this is true for Jesus. This is true for God. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells us three parables trying to help us understand his great love for the lost. He goes through and he starts out with this story about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. He doesn't have around a hundred sheep. He has a hundred sheep. He keeps track of exactly how many he has. And he's there and he's, he's out with him. And, and while he's out with him, He's counting. I don't know how often he had to count them and how many times you have to count them before you figured out what your count was. Because if you've ever tried to count wild animals 
or children, uh, you've discovered that they don't hold still. And so you're like, one, two, three, four, how, how many times have I counted you? And they're just, so I don't know how, what his system was for trying to count the sheep, but he got a count and he realized that one sheep was missing. And when one sheep was missing, he didn't look around and go, well, I still have around 100. 99 is pretty good. You know, 99 out of 100, that's definitely a passing grade. I'm good. It's okay. He goes, no, no, where, where's my sheep? And it says that he, he kind of rounds them up there. Then he leaves the 99. They're all nice bunched together. Well, he goes and looks for the one. And he searches and he searches and he searches till he finds the missing sheep. And then he takes the sheep, puts it on his shoulders, and he carries it back. And then in, in Luke 15, it says, sorry, in verse 7, it says that he had celebration. He invited everybody over and had a party because that which was lost was found. And then Jesus tells this one and then he goes on to the next one. And he says that there was, there was a lady who had 10 valuable silver coins and she lost one. And when she lost one, she took the house apart trying to find the one that was missing. She's sweeping everywhere. She's moving every rug, picking up everything. And she searches and she searches and she searches until she finds the one that was missing. And then she throws a party, which in my Dutch head totally didn't make sense. This whole idea that I need my money, I lost my money, I found my money, so I'm going to throw a party and spend money. But maybe she didn't spend any money. Maybe it was a potluck and everyone brought their own food. I don't know. But, but Jesus says this, he goes, that even in the same way that they're throwing a party, that when one lost person is saved, when one lost person comes back, when one sinner repents, he says that all the angels in heaven will rejoice. And he says that there's, there's a party. He goes, I am so excited when someone who was lost is found, when someone who is missing comes back, when someone who I didn't have a relationship with anymore comes back into relationship. He goes, this, this is what my heart longs for. He counts them. He doesn't around about it. I have four kids. I don't have somewhere between two and six. I have four kids. Every kid matters. And if one kid is missing, it's a problem. And there are lots of things in life that are important, but if one of my kids is missing, those other important things don't matter. And I begin going over these and he says, you know, hey, he's going to rejoice over more over that one that was found than over the 99 who didn't need to be found. And then he goes on, he tells a story of a father who has two sons. The the two sons, uh, one just wants to kind of please dad, one just wants dad's stuff. And the one who just wants dad's stuff says awful things, tells his dad he doesn't care that his dad's around, just wants his inheritance and wants to peace out. The dad gives it to him. And this is, this is like the really short version of the story. All the details for what you need right now. But if you want to read the story, this is in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. But when the, the son curses, his, he just tells his dad, hey, I don't care. I just want my money. I want to peace out. Dad splits everything he has between the, the two boys. And the younger boy just takes off and goes out and parties. He leaves town and he just, so he spends all he's got in just crazy living. So he's just throwing all these different parties while dad's not knowing what happened to him, not knowing where he went. And dad's worried at home. But, but this, this boy goes through all of this different mess. And finally, he runs out of money. When he runs out of money, he runs out of friends. He finds himself doing a despicable job. And he goes, you know what? My dad's servants have it better than this. I'm going to go back. I'm, you know, maybe my dad will take me back as a servant. 
And so he comes back. But when he comes back, you expect dad to be like, see, I told you, you shouldn't have done that. And we're like, we're all ready for him to like unload and to prove that he was right and to show that his son was wrong. But his son was working on his, his apology on his way. But when he shows up, dad comes running out. He's like, my son. And he, he sees his, the son sees his dad and he goes, dad, I'm so sorry. I'm not even worthy to be called your son. And his dad just interrupts him. He's like, my son was lost, but now he's found. And he, and he hugs him. And he grabs the servant. He's like, go kill the fatted calf. You go get a nice robe. Go bring him some sandals. And he starts to just throw this party. And there's just this complete I don't know, disregard for the fact that he could rub it in his son's face, that he was right and his son was wrong and so rude and so insulting. And, and he doesn't stand on this. He just goes, I'm just so glad to have you home. And he throws this party. But as he throws this party, everyone's excited. Dad's throwing the party. But the older brother comes back in from the field from wherever he was working. He hears the dancing, the music. I, and uh, when, he, when he shows up, he goes, what's going on? He taps another ser- a servant and the servant goes, oh, your brother's back and your dad killed the fatted calf and he's throwing a party. And, and this, the older brother's like, what? What is this? My brother was an idiot. My brother did this. My brother did that. How come dad's throwing a party for him? And he has this attitude of it's about me. I've done better. Why do you care so much about him? And the dad comes out and the dad goes, my son was lost. My son was dead to me and now he is found. It's right that I throw a party. And he goes through and he throws this and he invites his older son into the party and his older son wants to have a, it's all about me and doesn't want to go into the party. And the crazy thing is as the story ends, there's more lessons in the story, but it ends with the father saying, my son was lost but now is found. And it doesn't tell us whether the older son came in and joined the party or if he kept outside going, it's all about me. But God is looking for his lost children and we get to decide, are we going to help him or are we going to be like that older brother who's like, no, no, man, I didn't do what they did. It's all about me. And sometimes it's so easy to get caught up and our own thing that we miss out, that God, the most important thing to him is his kids, is his lost kids. In Matthew 28, verse 19, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. In Mark 16, 15, he says, go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to all of creation. In 2 Corinthians 5, 18, it says, and this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He goes and says, I've reconciled you and I've given you the job to go do that to others. To, to, I've brought you back. Now go bring others. Go find my lost kids. I love them. And, and I, I go over this over and over as I, as I was studying for this and I was looking at it and I realized that to some Christians, this is, this is rude. This is offensive that I would tell you that God has called you to go reach other people with the gospel, that you are called to be an evangelist. Myself and you all included as sons of God, as daughters of God, as disciples, we are called to be evangelists. We are called to bring in the lost. And so often I hear from people and they're like, no, no, no. 
That's for somebody else to do. That's for somebody who's an extrovert. That's for somebody who's a pastor, a teacher, a prophet, an evangelist, and they go through this list. But the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, 11, that he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. He said this is, that the pastor's job is to equip everybody else to actually go out and to reach people. But this becomes a problem because a lot of people, their God isn't their Lord. Their God is their genie. And so they're just like, oh no, God is for rubbing the lamp and giving me what I want. God is for, for when I have a problem, I'll give it a rub and then God will meet my needs. But when you tell me that God wants me to do something, that God's calling me and is expecting me to respond and obey and to participate in what he wants to do in the earth, they're like, wait a second. That's not the genie thing I signed up for. I rubbed the lamp and told it that I didn't want to go to hell. And I rubbed the lamp and told it that I wanted to be financially blessed. I wanted to have a good job. I wanted to have a beautiful wife. I wanted to have good kids. He goes, yes, God's got good things for you. But God's not a genie. God doesn't fit in the lamp. And God has a plan for you. And God has called us. It says in Ephesians 2.10 that we are... Uh, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared in advance. He says that he is calling us to help him reach his children. His longing, his wish is for his missing kids. And he told us that we're supposed to be the salt of the earth. Matthew chapter five, verse 13. Verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. He goes, can you, will you shine for me? Will you show people the love of God? Will you help draw them? Because the thing that matters to me is my kids. He says, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. We are always representing God everywhere that we go. When we take on his name, when we call on him and make him Lord, we are commissioned to let our light shine. We're commissioned to draw others towards him. We are supposed to do that by, by being a light, by being a sample. The Bible says in Romans 2, 4, that God's kindness draws people to repentance. And he's telling us that we're supposed to be his image bearer, that we're supposed to be his ambassador, that we're supposed to be a representation of him that goes out into the world. Uh, a little while ago, uh, my wife and I had a bunch going on and my wife found this coupon for, for Myers, and they had this, what do they call it? Like curbside pickup. And it normally, so there was a, a coupon that's supposed to cover the cost of, that, of the the courtesy fee, whatever they call it. And so we're like, oh, let's give this a shot because they don't really want us coming in with all the kids. And so, um, and then, anyhow, it was a busy day. So we're like, all right, we're going to give this a shot. And I go, we put in the order. It's time to go pick it up. And I don't have a clue what I'm doing. And I don't know what's customary and how exactly it works. But as I'm going, I'm thinking, I'm going, you know, however this works, I am a representative of Jesus. And I don't know if it's customary to tip, not to tip, but how, whatever I do, I'm going to be an example of Jesus. So I quick ran, grabbed, a, grabbed some cash off the, the counter, shoved it in my pocket, said, I am ready because I know that I want to represent Jesus. And so I get to Myers, I pull into the little spot and uh, text the, the shopper and I get a text back that they're, 
um, almost done. They, they're coming out and they, they come up and they load stuff up and I call them forward to the driver's side so I can give them the, the cash. And as I do, and they, they see me, I move my sunglasses and they look and they go, oh, hey, pastor. And they're like, oh, we so love your seven at sevens. We love your lives. Thank you. Or she, she, we, she, they, she says, oh, I so love your lives. And I, but it was this crazy thing of, so I, I get to, to, to tip, but I walked away going, sometimes they say, hey, pastor. It's like this call you out. Hey, you're representing Jesus right now. But sometimes they don't. And just because, yeah, they, they do that to me. Sometimes they call it out or they recognize it faster because they know that I'm a pastor. But it happens when they know that you're a Christian. It happens when they know that you attend church. When they go, oh, you're supposed to be the representative of what a Christian is. You're supposed to be what, a, an example of who God is. And so often people don't feel drawn to God because the people who represent God that they've seen weren't full of God's love and kindness. Jesus said that the thing that's supposed to mark us is his love. That we're supposed to be marked by it. But so often we're not. So often we're not passionate about seeking and saving the lost, about giving them opportunities, about praying for the sick, about offering what we have to them. And as I was looking at it, I'm like, why? How is it that we can look and say that heaven is to be gained and hell is to be avoided and not be passionate? How could we look at this and, and not feel a sense of urgency to share with those who don't know the Jesus that we know? How is it that we could say, I found a hope that I'm willing to not share? And I, I read a study that just kind of shocked me, disturbed me. Uh, in 1964, Kitty Gen Genovo Genovos, I just butchered her last name, but anyways, Katie, Kitty. Kitty was murdered in New York. 38 people, it was 38, uh, saw or heard her screams during her murder where she was stabbed to death repetitively. And they all did nothing. And when it happened, people freaked out and people were just like, these New Yorkers are horrible. And they, they went through and people were talking about how awful they were and how desensitized they'd been by living in the city. And then some people said, well, let's actually do a test and see if we can figure out why so many people could see it, could hear it, and could do nothing. And what they discovered was there's, there's a, a tendency, what they called the, the dispersion of responsibility. And they did tests and they discovered that the more people are aware of a problem, the less obligated they feel to do anything about it. They did a, one of their tests, they got somebody in and they said, okay, here's what you're going to do. We're going to have you here and I want you talking on the intercom with somebody else. And when they did this, they, they had the other person go into, so they're talking and they're, when it was one-on-one, -on -one, the person that they were talking to goes, oh yeah, sometimes I struggle with seizures and this is kind of what happens and what has to happen. And then as they're talking, they start to, to go through and I, I, I'm having a seizure, I need help. And they, they went through and they're like, if I don't get help, I'm going to die. And they're, 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 they're stuttering through this and they're talking. And when they did this, when it was just one-on-one -on -one across the radio, 
85% of the people got up and ran and helped, or came to try to help this person. But they did another group and they told them, hey, there's three people, but only one person can talk at a time. And so before the third person would have got a chance to talk, this happened. And when there was just the belief that there was somebody else aware, it went from 85% down to 62% of people who responded. Then they, they upped it and they, they said, hey, now there's, there's six people that are going to be on the intercoms. But there was still just the, the one and then the, the one who's kind of running the test. And it dropped down to 31%. And it was this crazy thing that the more people that they thought were aware of the situation, the less obligated they felt to help. And they went through and they did another one where they, they took people and they said, all right, here, uh, sit down right here, fill out this paperwork. And so they, they sit down and fill out the paperwork and the, the person leaves. And then smoke starts to fall, like to come underneath the door. And they started to blow the smoke out. 75% of the people left the room and reported it to the, the person who was running the test. But when they put three people in the room, only 38% of the people would come out and report it to the test. Then they put three people and they had two of them that were in on it. And they, when the two of them that were in on it were told, hey, you're just going to ignore things and just act like nothing's wrong. The one person where it had been 75% of people that would respond, now only 10% of people responded to the smoke coming underneath the door. And they, they said this is due to plural, pluralistic ignorance. The tendency to mistake one another's calm demeanor as a sign that no emergency is actually taking place. And they went through and they said when, when there's somebody else around, it's so easy to go, somebody else is better qualified. Somebody else will see it. Somebody else will help them. Somebody else will report the smoke. Somebody else will help the person who's sick. Somebody else will, will give to them. Somebody else will pull over and help them. Somebody else will. And it's so easy to go through this list and just be like, well, somebody better than me could do it. But sadly, that's what's happened to so many Christians is they've looked and they said, you know what? I know that my neighbor needs to meet Jesus. I know that my coworker needs to meet Jesus. I know that my cousin, my aunt, my uncle, my mother, my father, my son, my, my daughter, they need to know Jesus, but somebody else will reach them. Somebody else is more qualified. Somebody else has more answers. Somebody else will do it. And when they, when they do, they put the weight on somebody else, then it's very easy for them to do nothing. But we are called to something. We can't place the responsibility on somebody else. We are called. The Bible says, Jesus said that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He said, pray to the Lord to send laborers. And then Isaiah 6, 8 says, here am I, send me. Jesus ends the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, of the, of the person who stopped to help the person in need. And he goes, you go and do likewise. He goes, you, go share the love. Go reach somebody. And, and God says, when, when Jesus called his disciples, he said, I will make you fishers of men. He called all of us to be those who would go out, who would reach the lost. And I know for some people, they look and they go, but that's, but that's hard. Or you know what? But, but, but I, I said something to somebody once and they, they shut me down. The amazing thing about fishermen, my, my, Pastor Dwayne mentioned this the other day. He said that fishermen, 
When they, they cast and they catch nothing, they just say this. They just say, one more cast. And they just don't stop. They just keep casting. It's this, this never give up, never surrender. But so often there's this myth of just, oh, I just, well, well the church will reach them. They'll reach them there in the building. But do you realize that people who don't love Jesus normally don't hang out at church? If somebody who doesn't love Jesus is hanging out in church, it's because they love somebody who's at church. See, we have the opportunity. We can bring people to church and they may come because they love us. But until they love Jesus, they're not going to hang out here. We need to bring Jesus to them. We are called to be the light. We are called to reach his kids. The uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says, now you are the body of Christ and members individually. He says, you are his body. You are his hands. You are his feet. You are his mouthpiece. And you get to be his hands and feet to your neighbor, to your coworker, to your children, to your cousins, to your grandma, your grandpa, your in-laws. Yes, even your in-laws. You get to show them God's love. You get to reach out to them. And it's so important that Jesus said he sent his Holy Spirit to empower us to do it. And I begin to look at this and I'm going, okay, so if, if, if I am called to be the hands and the feet of Jesus, if I am called and he's supposed to reach them with his love, then I'm supposed to carry his love. I'm supposed to let his light shine. What, how do I do that? And I, I just, as I get ready to close, I wanted to go through just a couple of pointers on how to do that. How can you practically be God's hands and feet and show his love to the world? How can you help him reach his lost kids? Because he has recruited you to reach those kids that he loves. And he said this, he says, um, let your light shine before them. Show them God's love and kindness. It should be evident to your waiter, to your cashier, to everyone who comes in contact with you, that you are full of the love of God. When you tip, what's your, does your tip say, I'm a stingy goober? Or does your tip say, I love you and you're valuable? See, when you begin to show people God's love beyond what everybody else does, they wonder why. In fact, they'll ask you. I've had them ask me going, wow, thank you so much for helping. Most people just drive by. What, how come you stopped to help me change my tire, push my car, whatever the case may be, pull my boat. I've been able to look back and go, Jesus loves you. I've been able to sit here and when they, they ask, I can give them a reason for the hope, a reason for the love that I show. Sometimes they don't ask and I can end and say, you know what? Hey, Jesus loves you. Have a good day. And I can, I can begin to point to him for what it is that I've done. If you're gonna, gonna say something to a waiter, make sure you tip them well and they go, whoa, thank you, you don't need to. You know what? God loves you. God wants some good things for you. And it's amazing how, how you can shape how they see God. You can share, number two, you can share what God has done for you. And this, is, this isn't rocket science. This isn't mean you have to have the whole Bible memorized from Genesis to Revelation. But if God's done something in your life, the Bible tells us that we overcome by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. And we can say, you know what? God's done a work in my life. You know what? Hey, I was once this way, but, but God's changed me. God's done something for me. Hey, God's healed me. Hey, God's set me free. Hey, God's, God's changed my character. Hey, 
I begin to follow God and it will work inside of my marriage. You can point to what God's done and it gives God glory. You can, number three, you are, Point to your source, point to to God who's made a difference. You can share what God's done. You can pray for opportunities and you can be ready to seize the moment. So often I've talked to people who've thought that that for someone to meet Jesus, they had to be in church. They're like, I'll bring them to church and there they can meet Jesus. And I love it when people come to church. I am all about inviting people to church. I'm all about inviting them on, on while you're watching online to watch with you. But you don't have to be here. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse nine, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's no qualifying clause that says, if you call on Jesus' name while you're in church, when you're in front of a pastor, Jesus says, if you confess. We get to love on people it's amazing when you pray for somebody, when they're just hurting and you're going, oh, can I pray for you? I have people before you even have a chance to, to pray for them that are already touched. Not because yet there was anything that happened, but because they just felt that somebody cared enough to offer to pray. They're like, oh yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Go ahead and pray sometime. I'm like, oh, can I pray for you right now? What, me now? Yeah. You get done, thank you. Like, God's got great things for you. God loves you. God wants to see you whole. God wants to see you healed. And it's amazing that the opportunities that it can bring. But as we talk about a God that loves his children, a God that says, will you help me find my lost kids because I love them. God loves you. You're not the only one that he loves. And he's called all of us to reach out. But some of you guys may say, you know what? Hey, I don't have a relationship with God. If so, let me tell you something. God loves you. He loves you enough that he was willing to pay the greatest price for you. And if you have not made him the Lord of your life, or if you're not walking with him, I wanna give you a chance to respond. I wanna give you a chance to make him the Lord of your life. We're gonna do what it says right there in Romans 10. We're gonna call on his name. And wherever you are, I wanna invite you to call on his name. In front of your computer, in front of your TV, just say it with me. Repeat it to me. Say, God, I'm sorry for the wrong things I've done. I believe that you died and rose again. Thank you for washing my sins away. I choose to live for you from this day forward. I declare that you are the Lord in my life. In Jesus' name, amen.